Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. If you would join me in the blessing for the study of Torah, it's the usual beginning for those who know it, and then la'asok bedivrei Torah at the end. And if you don't know it, um, a hearty amen is always good as well. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kidshanu b'mitzvotav, v'tzivanu la'asok bedivrei Torah. Amen. So um, this topic of uh, Judaism, reproductive choice, abortion, reproductive justice, um, I always feel is timely. I always feel is important to sort of bring to light, especially within um, spaces of uh, communities of faith. And uh, I could not have anticipated that it would feel all the more timely this week as we're seeing um, some really significant legislation being passed in states like Alabama and elsewhere. And you know, I was saying to David before this, sometimes we think to ourselves like, who lives in Alabama? That's all the way over there. Like what? And you know, I realized I talked yesterday to my cousin who lives in Birmingham with her husband and her two kids. So you know, we know and love people who live in these states that are experiencing these kinds of restrictions. Um, and I also, before I begin, I want to acknowledge that the, the topic of abortion and reproductive health care and reproductive choice is a very personal one for many people. Um, it's not one that anybody comes to with exactly the same um, emotional experiences or lived experiences. Um, and we love people who live in states that are experiencing restrictions, and we also love people who have abortions. I do. Um, I know people who I love dearly who have had abortions, and it's very likely that you do as well, whether or not you know it, because one in four women, according to some statistics, have made the choice to terminate a pregnancy. So it's very possible that someone in your life or even someone in this room has had this experience. So I want to sort of lay that out before we begin, because we're going to be talking about texts, we're going to be talking about um, theology and philosophy and different ideas, but these ideas get played out in people's real lives. And it's really important for us to be aware of that in the way that um, we ask questions and we discuss and we talk about these things. So um, I'm going to sort of present things, but I invite you to, if you have a question, if something comes up, if you have a comment, um, I'll call on you. If I feel like we're getting too far over, those who have had me for Torah study will know. I'm just going to reel us right back in. But um, I hope that this can be sort of an interactive um, experience for all of us. How do I come to this topic um, and expertise on this topic? Well, when I was in rabbinical school, um, I started working for an organization called the Religious Institute. And while I was there, they published um, this paper, this was in 2015, called The Time to Embrace, Why the Sexual and Reproductive Justice Movement Needs Religion. And it was a discussion about um, exactly that question. And while we were talking about this, this was in a predominantly Christian office, um, I started to think about what would be the Jewish language to bring to this uh, discussion. And we'll talk a little bit about why does the sexual and reproductive justice movement need religion and particularly sort of progressive faith voices of religion. Um, so this was sort of the beginning of the quest, not really the beginning because um, I am the daughter of two very proud feminists. Um, I think my father has been on the board of Massachusetts NARAL for the last like 25 years. Um, and uh, both of my parents are very sort of staunchly pro-choice and um, that was an environment that I was sort of raised in and understood. So it began much earlier, but really my sort of intellectual inquiry began with this work and this paper. And I ended up writing my rabbinic thesis on the question of developing a progressive Jewish theology of reproductive choice. 
because I found um, that I wasn't satisfied with what was available in terms of language around these discussions. We're going to talk through what has Jewish tradition had to say for the last um, 2,000 plus years, but we're also going to talk about what do I think that it could continue to say. Um, so that's really a part of this. And I say that because I want to acknowledge my own sort of bias here, is that I, I want to push tradition to continue speaking to this issue and to continue speaking to its relevance. So that's kind of my broad overview before we sort of jump in. Any questions up to this point? So um, one of the things we found in the work that we did on why the sexual and reproductive justice movement needs religion is um, we looked at a Pew study survey um, from 2013, 2014, that uh, asked sort of religious and non-religious Americans about their opinions on the issue of abortion. And um, there were some really interesting findings. So when asked the question, do you believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases, Jews, and this was all American Jews, not broken down by denomination, Jews ranked the highest to say um, agree in all or most cases. 89% of American Jews at the time, this was five years ago, believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. The next sort of group below that comes in at 75%, and that's unaffiliated people, so folks who don't affiliate with a religion, believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. So that alone is interesting, right? What is it about Judaism that puts Jews at not just the highest ranking with that question, but also, you know, eight points, eight point, I can't do math, 89 minus 75, 14 points, 14 points, there we go, 14 points above the next group, which is the group of unaffiliated folks, right? So that's one interesting piece of data. The second piece of data that we found was then the question was asked, do you believe that abortion is morally acceptable? So the difference being the first question was, should it be legal in all or most cases? And here the question is, do you believe that abortion should, is morally acceptable? And again, Jews rank highest percentage-wise of all American religious groups including unaffiliated, and Jews rank at 73% believe that abortion, agree that abortion is morally acceptable in all or most cases. Okay, so we know that there's a, a, a drop-off, right? 89 to 73, that's now, why did I do this to myself? 16, right? 16% lower, right? And the next group below that, once again, is, um, so it's 73% say definitely morally acceptable and 13% say it depends. So you're even you know, up in the 80s. Yeah. What's the percentage of Jews who believe That question wasn't asked in this um, survey. This was specifically about abortion. Um, and so the next group under that is um, unaffiliated once again. And now they say if asked, um, is abortion morally acceptable? Yes, 54%. So you can see there's a big jump there from 75 to 54. 11% um, say it depends. So even with that number added, you're in the 60s, the mid 60s. Um, that it takes it down through all the religious denominations in the United States, all the way down to the lowest, which is white evangelicals and Latino Catholics, who are at 13% believe abortion is morally acceptable, 12% depends, and Latino Catholics 11% and 10% um, morally acceptable, and it depends. So you can see, first of all, that there's a wide range of opinions within religious groups in the United States about this issue, and that in all cases, we saw this across the board, those who say yes to the question, is it should it be legal in all or most cases, were a higher percentage than those in the same group who would say it's morally acceptable. So the, yes, Abby. So this is a, a percentage of, of those who responded to the question. It's not necessarily a percentage of, for example, for the Jews, a percentage of Jews who would believe it. 
Well, uh, so the question was, this is the percentage of those who respond, I have to repeat, this was the, the percentage of those who responded to the question and not necessarily percentage of Jews. As with any sort of massive broad survey that an organization like Pew does, and they do a ton of these surveys, there's a great one on just the state of um, you know, American Jews also came out in 2013. It was all we talked about in rabbinical school for like three years. <laughs> Why are people unaffiliated? Why do people think that a good sense of humor is more important than Jewish practice and Jewish identity? All those questions come up. So it's um, based on pretty robust survey data where it's random sampling. They're asking, you know, from a wide swath of people. So yes, they didn't ask every Jew in America, how did they feel about this? But they asked a random representative sample of each of these religious groups. And I think the data is, um, you know, we can extrapolate it out pretty successfully. Yeah. We sort of defined this as something called uh, what we call the legality-morality divide. That there is a gap between what people think should be legal and what people think is morally acceptable. And that divide causes, we sort of posited, um, a couple of things. Um, one is that there, the, the language sort of values language around the issue of abortion has been kind of ceded to the religious right. So that most of these sort of secular institutions um, that are doing this kind of work from a progressive place don't have with them kind of rich religious language, right? And we know this, this for example is an example about birth control. If you um, look at the news, when a news story is talking about the question of birth control, um, they will, I think this is six times, they are six times as likely to interview a Catholic priest as a source than an OBGYN, right? Think about that for a second. A question about birth control, they are six times as likely to, the news is six times as likely to interview a Catholic priest than they are a OBGYN, right? A medical expert in birth control. So that's just the example of birth control. I think the same thing applies often when we sort of look at the way that media presents language around reproductive choice and reproductive rights that the assumption is religion says one thing about this issue and that that thing is anti-abortion, anti-choice, right? Yeah, David. The question that was asked about morality, did it, did it, was, I think you may have re, uh, talked about the wording twice. Once you said, you know, is it, is it, more, is it morally acceptable to have an, an abortion? And then the second time you said the question, I think you said, under most, under most circumstances, is it morally acceptable to have an abortion? So, what was the wording? Yeah, so I was differentiating between um, categories. People were offered the following categories to choose from. Um, it's morally acceptable, depends on the situation, morally wrong, not a moral issue, and I don't know where I refuse to answer. Okay. So, for example, Jews, 73% of Jews, when asked the question, let me see if I can find the exact, exact wording for you. That I'm not sure there's really a difference between those two. Because if someone says it's morally acceptable or it's morally acceptable based on the circumstances, mm -hmm. even if that number, what if that number is even 10%? Still, you can make an argument that 100% of the people could say it should be legal to have an abortion. Why? Under that 10% of circumstances, the option should be that you could have an abortion. It would be legal to have an abortion. Right. I don't see the difference between those two numbers as being significant. Yeah, so absolutely. So if we add the two numbers together of it's morally acceptable and it would be morally acceptable depending on the circumstances, the numbers are still lower than those who believe it should be legally acceptable. Right, but I'm saying that's insignificant because even if they say under some circumstances it's morally acceptable, the law should always be there then under those circumstances for someone to have that abortion. Right, so yes, so um, what, what I'm offering is the idea that there are folks mm -hmm. who would answer, yes, this should be legal, mm -hmm. but I don't actually think it's morally acceptable. Okay. Right? 
um, so that there are people who have a sort of a language of the legality of this mm -hmm. that does not coincide with the language they have around the morality of it. Okay. And that is the gap that we're sort of trying to, to bridge. Um, one, because I think it, it helps um, it helps people who already sort of know where they stand on the issue frame it within um, a religious context and a moral context because we all are, we don't, you know, deserve to split ourselves in that kind of way. A lot of people I talk to say, well, you know, my, my work on this is in one place and my religious self is in this other place and, you know, I'm not really sure how to reconcile the two. I think it's easier for Jews to do that than for people of other faiths sometimes. Um, but even for Jews, it can sometimes be hard. I interviewed someone in the process of my thesis who said, you know, I was part of a Planned Parenthood gala planning committee, and I knew, like, five of the seven women on the committee were Jews. Like, we all saw each other at Oneg the night before. And then here we are at the planning committee, and we don't say a word to each other about our Jewishness or how it affects you know, the reason we do this work and why we do this work. So that was the, the question that I was interested in, in sort of endeavoring to offer a richer moral theological language for the question of reproductive choice and reproductive justice. Um, I've used, by the way, the term reproductive justice a bunch of times, and I just want to make sure I stop and define that for us all, because reproductive justice um, we love to just sort of like stick justice on the end of something, right? Like, you know, environmental justice and food justice and all of these things. Reproductive justice was a, a term coined by a group of black women in the 1990s who attended a feminist conference on the question of reproductive rights and felt like their concerns were not sort of being elevated to the table and felt like there needed to be a broader framework for talking about this issue other than just... Um, do we have the right to have an abortion? And so reproductive justice as a framework asks us to consider how is it that we are sort of creating systems that allow women and their families to choose to have a child, not have a child, and parent that child in a safe and secure environment. Which means that the reproductive justice framework sort of moves us beyond just the question of abortion, although it obviously includes it. But for some people, they don't want to, you know, go there or it's not comfortable for them. But they can then talk about, you know, universal access to preschool. That would be part of reproductive justice. What's something about how you decide to have children? Well, can you take care of those children? Are they growing up in safe communities? Do they have access to education? And are you getting comprehensive sexual, edu you know, sexual education in your communities? Are you getting access to reproductive uh, health care? Are you getting access to um, birth control? All of those things sort of fall under that umbrella of reproductive justice. Okay, so this has been a lot of like theory and thoughts. I want to take a look at um, some texts. And we're going to start um, by talking through some of the texts around... Uh, Abortion, and you know, having said, reproductive justice kind of brings our framework larger. I am going to focus here on the question of abortion, um, but I think the the ways that we talk about that can be applied to some of the other issues within reproductive justice as well. It's a, a similar um, process. Yes, Judith. Isn't it kind of a, a cop out or sloughing off, sloughing off of? Well, I when you when somebody says, well. I personally wouldn't do it or don't believe in it, but it is the law, so it's okay. So you have pushed it off onto the law, and you don't have to worry about what your personal beliefs are, because if it's legal, it's legal, and that's your justification. I mean, personally, I think not to allow it is, is the most basic form of slavery, but you, you, you put it off on... Well, I don't, it's my religious beliefs, but it is the law, so it's okay. So I'm repeating for the microphone. The question was, I'll try to summarize, um, is it sort of, is it acceptable to say, well, you know, I, I wouldn't do it or it's not my religious belief, but it is the law and therefore it's okay. Um, I want to encourage us again to sort of um, 
be mindful of our language around, you know, oh, this person says this and that's not okay and this person says that. People come to this from a lot of different places. And I know people who have very thoughtful, very reasoned, very values-based um, ideas about this topic who for them personally, it's not something that they would choose, um, but they want to ensure that it's something that someone else could choose. So I do think there, you know, we should definitely ensure that there's space for that um, in this discussion. So um, we're going to take a look at some texts, and um, we're going to take a look at sort of the main texts that Judaism points to on abortion. If you are curious about sort of more, I'm happy to send you my thesis, all of chapter one, <laughs> spends time on all of this stuff. Um, but we're going to see sort of the highlights, so to speak. And then um, from there, we're going to sort of think about, okay, are, are these the only voices that we use when we say we're thinking Jewishly about this topic? Or can we, can we expand our definition of what that means? So um, the, basically one of the only Torah texts that people use when discussing um, abortion within Judaism is this first um, text from Exodus 21, verses 22 to 23. So this is the portion of Mishpatim. And um, I'm going to read because I have the microphone on, so I apologize. You're just going to hear my voice. Uh, so the text says, When men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but no other damage ensues, the one responsible shall be fined according as the woman's husband may exact from him the payment to be based on reckoning. But if other damage ensues, the penalty shall be life for life. So what, it, what is the key sort of concept within this text? Judith. A woman is a piece of property, and you have damaged the property of the husband, and therefore he claims damages. Interesting. Okay, so the suggestion was a woman is a piece of property and you've damaged. So let's be clear. There are two scenarios. Um, and by the way, this is sort of within a broader discussion of like tort, torts and, you know, different case laws of damages. The first scenario is that a pregnant woman is pushed and she has a miscarriage. Now, when it says no other damage ensues, what that means is she survives. She lives. In that case, the one responsible is fined according to the as the woman's husband may exact from him. So yes, the fetal property is his property, and he receives a fine for the loss of that property, so to speak. Then the second case is if other damage ensues, meaning if the woman herself dies because of this fight, then the penalty shall be life for life. And the Hebrew is nefesh tachat nafesh. Um, and it's fascinating that we're reading this this week because in, in this week's portion of Amor, at the very end, it talks about, you know, this idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. Yeah? Well, no, I was going to say it shows that the real damage is for the loss of the woman. It's not, it's not the Yeah, so um, it shows that the real damage is the loss of the woman as opposed to the fetus. It's a clear status differential. If in one case you have to pay money, and if one case it's a capital crime, there has to be a clear differential in status, in personhood, between the fetus and the woman. Did you have a question, Abby? Uh, so they're not, they're not considering the fetus, the, the fetus According, so they're not considering the fetus a life was a question. According to this text, at least, it's not a nefesh, a, a being, a soul, a life. And it's really important. Um, we sometimes are casual with our language, I think, when talking about abortion. The question always becomes, you know, when does life begin? And people always say, oh, life begins at conception, or life begins at 41 days, or life begins at this. That's actually not the relevant question. Right? Because life is all sorts of things, right? Like the fungus on the other underside of your toe, like that's life, right? <laughs> we don't worry too much about it, you know, whether or not you're gonna buff it off or not, right? The question is not when does life begin? The question is when does personhood begin? Right? Because that's really the the key question here. Yeah, so if the mother survives but the fetus does not, it's a monetary fine 
exacted, I guess somehow they sort of figured out what was the value of the fetus to the husband. And then he receives a monetary payment for that. Yeah. Yes, so the, it, the fetus is considered more like a, a piece of property. So um, this is sort of the first key text in the Jewish discussion of abortion. And it sets up one of the big questions, which is sort of what is the status of the potential life in the womb versus the status of the extant life outside of the womb. And at least according to these two verses in Torah, there's a pretty clear differential between those two things, right? There's a different status accorded to the mother than there is to the fetus. So that kind of opens the door. And then um, rabbinic texts are going to walk in and kind of interpret further. Now, something to keep in mind for all of us is that none of these texts are really talking about abortion as we understand it today, right? This first one, this is accidental miscarriage, right? And none of these texts understand, you know, there is no medical procedure. They are not going to the Planned Parenthood of, of you know, Hebron or wherever, you know, there, there isn't, it's, we are using texts and trying to help use them to understand sort of contemporary realities, which is something that Judaism always has to strive to do. Same way you have to figure out, can I open my refrigerator on Shabbat or not, right? Nobody had a refrigerator in the Bible. So um, you'll notice that these texts aren't perfect, but they're what we have in terms of at least asking the bigger questions when it comes to abortion. So the next text we can see is a text from the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a, a work of sort of rabbinic legal um, collection that's sort of codified and written down in around 220 of the Common Era. And um, this is Mishnah Ohalot. And it talks about a specific case where a woman is having difficulty in childbirth. Um, and it doesn't say specifically is that difficulty, you know, life-threatening. It just says maksha leled. It's, it's hard for her. It's hard for her. So it says, if a woman is having difficult in childbirth, one cuts up the fetus inside her and takes it out limb by limb, for her life comes before its life. And now there are two texts, there are sort of different variations of this. One is if most of it had come out, and one of it is if the, if the head has come out. So there must have been some sort of ancient understanding of a breech birth, right? Um, one does not touch it. For one does not push off one life for another. And again, the Hebrew is she'en dochin, that you don't push. Nefesh mipnei nefesh, a nefesh, a being, a soul, a human, for another. So what does this understanding teach us, graphic as it is? That the mother comes before the child. That up until the, right before the child is born, if the mother is having difficulty, and it doesn't define specifically what that difficulty is, then it is, you, you can put the mother's life as precedent over the life of the fetus. That as soon as either the head or the, the most of the, the child comes out into the world, then you can't make that kind of a choice. So this seems to imply that any time within the womb, there is a, a status differential between life potential life or life in the womb and life outside of it. What's the Hebrew? It says if a woman is having difficulty in childbirth. Yeah, so it's ha'ish. Specific during childbirth, not yeah. during pregnancy, right? Right, yeah. So we could read that in two ways, right? It's a great question. The question was what, what it's, you know, the specific cases she's having difficulty in childbirth. So we could read that two ways. One is this means they're sort of all the way up until the point of childbirth this would be acceptable. And one other way of reading it is saying, no, it's only in the moment of childbirth that this case is referring to. And at any other time, that's not really what we're talking about. And we're going to see, um, I'm going to sort of talk to you a little bit about how things develop off of these texts, that there are sort of two schools of thought around what, what it really means, this question of kind of difficulty and what that actually means. Yeah. So this, you know, this text could mean um, according to our understanding, that abortion might be acceptable at any point in a pregnancy. It also could be read to mean that abortion could only be acceptable when it causes extreme difficulty in a pregnancy 
or when it would cause some kind of trouble in childbirth, right? So I want us to see that there are often more than one interpretive possibility for a text, right? A lot of the times we like to sort of pull a text out of our pocket and say, ha-ha, you know, Leviticus 18, 22, ha-ha, right? Like, I have it. And the truth is that um, especially within Judaism, there's, there's a range of ways to interpret these texts. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So one of the ways that this develops is in the question about the status of the fetus. And, and the question of when is it acceptable to terminate the pregnancy? And is, it, um, is the question just about the, the fetus's status as a nefesh, as a life or not a life, a, a, a being, and in sort of a, a soul or not a soul? Or is there something kind of an extra stringency needed in order to have the termination of a pregnancy be legitimate? So um, some of that comes to a head in uh, what we'll see about the next text, Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 72b. So Rabbi Huna says, a minor in pursuit, and the Hebrew is a rodaif, someone who's running after, after you, may be slain to save the pursued. Thus he maintains that a pursuer, whether an adult or a minor, need not be formally warned. So they're coming at this from the law of self-defense, right? Someone's coming after you, to try to kill you, you can kill them. That's okay, right? They're a rodaif. They're coming after you. Rabbi Chista asked Rabbi Huna, so now someone asks him a question. We learned from this Mishnah we just read, once his head has come forth, he may not be harmed because one life may not be taken to save another. But why so? Is he not a pursuer? So the question is, if the Rabbi Chista is understanding this situation as the baby is um, threatening the life of the mother, which makes him a rodaif, a pursuer, and therefore can be killed because you are allowed to kill in self-defense. And it's, a, it's an interesting question, right? Why does, why does it stop as soon as the baby becomes a nefesh? And, uh, the answer is, there it is different, for she is pursued by heaven. Interesting, sort of a sidestep, right? Like, yeah, like, yeah it's God, that's up to God, right? That's, I'm not, you know, we won't get into that. But it calls, you know, it calls us to see that there's sort of an interesting dynamic at play here. Is the question just about sort of, is the fetus a nefesh or not a nefesh? Or is the question about, is it a rodaif? Is it really, is it going to cause severe potential harm to the mother. And if it's a rodaif, why does it stop being a rodaif as soon as it's born? Well, here, I guess it turns out it's not really that the baby is a rodaif. It's that, you know, something's going on cosmically. But what's going to happen is that Rashi, 11th century France sage, takes up this idea. And he says, he sort of, um, in his commentary on Sanhedrin 72b, he's going to be really clear. He says, love nefesh hu. The fetus is not a nefesh. That's the real issue at stake here. The fetus is not a nefesh. So building on Rashi, we're going to see hundreds of years of sort of more lenient decisions, right? The question is really just about, is the fetus uh, a full human being with full human being status. And that allows for more lenient decision making. Maimonides, on the other hand, comes off of this idea. And he writes in Hilchot Rotzeach Ushmirat Nafesh, the laws of the murderer and the preserving of life, 1-9, if you want the citation. Um, the fetus is kerodef. It's like, I don't have that in the sheet, I'm sorry. Um, the fetus is kerodef. It's like a rodef. It's like a pursuer. And therefore, his position turns into the more stringent position, which is only when the fetus is kirodef, like a pursuer, is it acceptable to terminate the pregnancy. The nefesh question is no longer operatable, right? It, we don't care as much about that issue. The issue is, is it um, immediately threatening the life of the mother? And so you see more stringent positions develop based on sort of that idea and that commentary. 
So again, there is no one position within Judaism on abortion, right? Sometimes there's a more lenient way of reading the texts as they exist, and sometimes there's a more stringent way of reading the texts as they exist. Um, you're going to see this text second to the bottom from Mishnah Arachin. Um, I'm not going to go into that one, but that's another text that sometimes people will reference about, you know, before a woman is executed, you can cause her to miscarriage. Um, we can talk about that more if you have questions about it. It's very fascinating, the rationale. Um, I want us to look very briefly at this final text at the bottom because I want you to see how much hinges on the way we read and interpret. And then we're going to get into sort of some modern ideas. Um, the verse here in Hebrew comes from Genesis 9-6. And in the Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin 57b, Rabbi Ishmael is interpreting this verse. He's talking about, you know, different prohibitions and things that are allowed for people who are um, Noahides or Gentiles. And the verse is, Shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam damo yishafech ki b'tselem Elohim asa et ha'adam. So the last half is because human beings were made in God's image. And the first half can be read in two possible ways, depending on where you put the comma. Was there a comma in the Torah? No, there wasn't, which means you can read it either way. So if you read it as shofech dam ha'adam, comma, ba'adam damo yishafech, it reads as follows. Shofech dam ha'adam, the one who spills the blood of a human being, comma, ba'adam damo yishafech, by a human being, their blood will be spilled. That's the sort of classic reading of it. Don't kill somebody else because you're going to be killed, right? It's a prohibition against murder. If you move the comma one word over, here is how you can read it. Shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam. <laughs> Say that five times fast. The one who spills the blood of a person in a person, comma, damo yishafech, their blood shall be spilled. Which Rabbi Ishmael reads to mean... It's a blanket prohibition against feticide, against aborting a fetus, because he moves the comma. And from ever after, right, the Tosafists pick up on this. They're sort of Rashi's um, descendants in French. They pick up on this, and they say um, it's prohibited to Gentiles to have abortions. And it's, it's not prohibited to Jews, but it's not allowed either. Right? They get into a whole legal thing. And from then on, generations will have to deal with a Tosafist ban on this procedure because the comma moved one, one word over. Right? Which is not to say that's not how we could read the verse. But it's also to say there's a very other very legitimate reading of the verse where the commas move back a word. And so much hinges on that where you put the comma. Right? So... Um, all of this is to say that the textual options for how we talk about abortion within Judaism can, can be interpreted and used in many ways. It's clear that abortion in Judaism has a different um, status than in a religion like Catholicism, where outright it's quite clear, you know, abortion is murder. Judaism doesn't ever take that stance. And pretty much across the board in Judaism, if... Um, abortion is medically necessary to save the life of a mother, not only is it not prohibited, it's required, right? So um, there are certainly kind of broader implications to these sources that lead abortion to, uh, lead Judaism to a little bit more of a progressive stance on abortion. And then within that, there is a lot of space for movement and a lot of space for development. And texts that I didn't bring you but that become very relevant are texts from the pre-modern and the modern period um, uh, responsa literature, where rabbis of communities are asked, you know, I have this situation, this woman committed adultery and now she's pregnant, what should she do? Or I have this situation, this woman is uh, nursing another child and now she's pregnant, what should she do? By the way, anyone want to guess on what the rabbis in each of those decisions decide? Whether or not you could have an abortion. What did you say? They decide whether you're adulterous or Jewish or not. 
we, we assume the adulteress is Jewish in both cases. You know, in both cases, the woman is Jewish. That's why they're asking. That's why they're asking. They don't, they're not interested in that question. So the answer is in both of those cases, the rabbis decide that an abortion is acceptable in both of those cases. There are plenty of other cases that feel like maybe more of a justification where rabbis decide, no, it's not acceptable. Um, so there's a lot of different texts out there. And again, if you're curious about them, I will send you my thesis and you can <laughs> read the first chapter of it. Um, yes, Judith. Well, that corresponds in many states. The laws on assault and battery are very careful to not impose, if, if the woman who is injured is pregnant, the states are very careful not to impose an additional penalty because of the battery on the fetus because they don't want to get into a discussion of abortion. It may be a more severe penalty adapted to the woman's injury, but it will very carefully avoid mentioning anything to do with the fetal injury. Interesting. So this is a discussion on the American civil law about sort of the battery which, of women who are which pregnant. does vary from state to state. Uh, which varies from state to state. So um, what I want to sort of move us to and what I feel like is the sort of most substantive work of my thesis and, and the piece that I'm most interested in is um, how do we move beyond this sheet to where we actually need to be? Because for the this might work for a lot of people, and it does, right? But for a lot of Jews that I know, they're not going to the rabbi and saying, what is the Jewish legal principle around this decision, right? They're coming to it um, as kind of an autonomous self, but as a self rooted in Judaism, trying to find language for the choices that they're going to make. And this might not feel like representative enough of the span of those choices or the span of the questions that are being asked. Because really here, the only questions that are being asked are what's the status of the mother versus the status of the fetus. There are a lot of other questions that people think about when they think about their reproductive decision making, right? And those questions are not necessarily being asked. And sometimes they're not being asked because the voice of authority in Judaism for the last um, X number minus 45 years or so has been the voice of men, right, who don't have the same experience of carrying a pregnancy, potentially. Um, again, of course, not all women have the possibility of carrying a pregnancy. Not all men don't have the possibility of carrying a pregnancy. But for the, for the most part, we might use that language, right? Um, so what I'm interested in is expanding the dialogue beyond just these texts to um, what are some other values, some other questions, some other principles that Judaism can offer us when we think about this issue. So with that, I'm going to invite us to turn to the back of the page. And the first piece here that I want us to look at is an amazing essay that a woman named Blue Greenberg, who is a um, orthodox feminist thinker, um, wrote in 1976, so this is three years after Roe v. Wade passes in the Supreme Court, um, 1976. And um, what she writes is fascinating because first of all, and this speaks to what Judith brought up earlier, the first thing she writes at the top here is, emotionally, theologically, as a Jew, and most of all as a mother who is daily nurtured by the sights and sounds of her children, I am opposed to abortion. So she lays it out to start, right? This is where I am personally. However, I'm now going to spend an entire essay telling you basically the opposite. And she does it in a really subversive way. First of all, she brings up the idea that there would be other reasons that women might choose to have abortions other than um, medically indicated ones, which is where most of the discussion kind of lives, right? Is it justifiable? Right? And Rebecca Todd Peters, who's a Christian theologian and just wrote a book called Trust Women that's excellent that I recommend, talks about the need to move from a justification paradigm when we talk about this issue to a justice paradigm. Right? We should not have to constantly be justifying why things are acceptable. 
Rebecca Todd Peters is her name, and the book is called Trust Women. Um, so Greenberg writes, when conditions do exist, and here are the options she offers, such as the need to support self and or husband through school, the need for time for a marriage to stabilize, overwhelming responsibilities to other children, and so forth, right? None of these are medically indicated abortions, right? Then abortion should be seen as a necessity rather than an evil. Many mitzvot, commandments, are interdependent functions of timing and of the conditions which they regulate. This is super transgressive, and I will tell you why. First of all, she's talking about other reasons to have an abortion, right? And this from a woman who opens the article by saying, I don't think people should be having abortions, right? And yet, you, sh you should be able to, basically. And this last sentence is really subversive because she's, she's talking about a couple of things. She's sort of flipping a couple of things. Number one, we know that a mitzvah is to be fruitful and multiply, right? It's one of the first ones that shows up in the Torah. Pru or vu, be fruitful and multiply, right? What's interesting is the way that Jewish tradition has understand that mitzvah is that it only applies to men. Fascinating because you know we're pretty we're pretty necessary, right, for the fruitful and multiply piece, right? But Jewish tradition says it only applies to men, the, the commandment of being fruitful and multiply. So first of all, she's taking on that commandment and saying that applies to women too, right? Procreation as a commandment can be a commandment assigned to women as well. And then she says they're interdependent functions of timing and of the conditions which they regulate. So, for example, if I light Shabbat candles on Wednesday at 3 o'clock, I'm not really doing a mitzvah, am I? Right? It's the wrong time. It's, I'm not doing it right. Right? I have to do it at Friday, you know, 36 minutes before sundown or early or whatever. So, um, she's saying the exact same principle can apply here. It might be a commandment to procreate, but that commandment is is a positive time-bound commandment. It has to happen under the right circumstances, just like lighting candles or um, putting on your tefillin in the morning or putting on your tallit or celebrating Hanukkah or anything else. And what's really transgressive about that is that largely Jewish tradition, other than lighting candles, Jewish tradition sees women as exempt from positive time-bound commandments, right? And she's saying, no, that idea applies to us as well. It applies to us for a commandment you thought we weren't commanded to do. And it allows us to make choices about how we reproduce that mean that the sort of sacredness of our bringing children into the world is aligned with when and how we do that. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, right. It's also amazing that she's coming from an orthodox perspective. Right. Um, so this sort of, for me, is like the first step in kind of opening the door and opening the dialogue. This is the earliest piece I could find by a woman talking about sort of abortion within Jewish law and abortion within Jewish text and Jewish tradition. Um, there are some other really great sort of ways of looking at this and, and feminist kind of critique. Um, I love what Sandra Lubarsky offers in, again, an article. Um, she's coming from more the perspective of an ethicist rather than a theologian. Um, she talks about the justification of abortion for non-medical reasons. So again, opening up the range of experiences. And she says, which I think is really lovely, Judaism can uphold such positions, meaning the position that we could have an abortion for a non-medical reason, without denying either the tragedy of abortion, what might have been and was not, or the life-affirming aspects of abortion, what can be. I think often when we talk about this topic, we get stuck on, I have to be on one side or the other. I can't acknowledge the nuance of this situation. For some people, having an abortion is an incredible relief. There's not a piece of tragedy to it. It's life-affirming, right? What can be in my life now that I'm not going to have this child? And for other people, it's a tragedy. What might have been and was not. And very often we get stuck either 
reciting the stories of one camp or the other and not allowing both of them to coexist. And Lubarski in this article talks about we can and Judaism can. Yeah. Yeah, so this, the comment is that it expands the idea of medical to not just physical medical, but psychological. And, you know, even rabbinic authorities will do that, right? There's one who writes, you know, the question is not, is it their great, um, like, danger, but is there a tzorech gadol? Is there a great need? And he ends up deciding in a case where it would be psychologically too upsetting to a mother to have the, to continue the pregnancy, that it would be okay to have an abortion. Um, but, but I think what Lubarsky helps us see is it expands it even beyond that, right? Not the need to justify, you know, this is going to be too upsetting for this woman psychologically and therefore it's okay, right? But trusting that women understand what might be when they are carrying potential life and are then able to make a decision um, that is life-affirming for them and for that potential life, right? Um, I think that it's really powerful to, to, to say to people, right, even the articles I've been reading today, people have been sending me articles because of all that's going out in the United States. A lot of the time people just stop at, you know, what can we justify? What's acceptable? Like, what, what's not crossing too far? And I want to say, what if we were to change the framework of that and say, as Rebecca Todd Peters does, we trust women to be able to understand the nuances of what's going on in their bodies and in their lives and make those choices themselves. They, there doesn't need to be a justification paradigm for that. Um, Rachel Adler is a uh, feminist theologian. She teaches at HUC in LA, um, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Adler. And um, in her book, it's sort of a inclusive work of uh, feminist theology from 1998, she talks about um, needing a broader paradigm than just the front half of this page, right? And she talks about it, at, you know, from a space of feminist critique, which is basically um, these texts don't treat women as human beings, even when they're saying women are human beings as opposed to their fetus, right? And so there's a need to reevaluate them and reevaluate the system that creates them, not necessarily to throw it away, but to sort of offer maybe some new language or offer things from the experiences of people who are actually affected by the issue that's being discussed. Um, and that's where <laughs> I have one minute. <laughs> um, and that's where I want to turn ever so briefly to close, um, which is, you know, I keep talking about chapter one of my thesis. Chapter one is all the texts, but um, chapters two through five are my attempt to kind of move us to that new paradigm and to the question of can we create a system of ethics that's not just based around legal texts that come from a certain time and place and voice, but can we create a system of sort of ethics and moral language and values around this topic, which is so needed, um, that rely on the lived experiences of people who go through it. So I interviewed um, close to 20 people who had the experience either of choosing abortion or not choosing abortion, or who have worked as abortion providers. Um, and I sort of listened to the themes that arose as they spoke. And I found that there were kind of five values um, or value images or ideas that um, came to the forefront and that um, fit within a Jewish paradigm they just maybe haven't been offered yet. And I want to briefly tell you, hopefully you'll permit me the extra five minutes, <laughs> um, briefly tell you what those five values are and then give you an example of how we might use those um, in a Jewish context to provide ourselves some new images and some new ideas. So the five values are the following. I don't know if this pen will work. Um, number one, people talked about the importance of storytelling around the creative process from an embodied place, right? From the place of I am a um, person who can become pregnant, and that's really important in having this discussion and talking about sort of the sacredness of creation and what it is to create. 
So the first principle was around questions of what does it mean to be a creator? What is it, you know, how does God create? That's not a question being asked in those original texts, right? What does it mean to be a creator? And what would it mean to have an image of a creator that looks like me? That was something that people brought up a lot. So that's number one. Number two, a lot of people talked about the importance of bodily integrity, right? I live in this body. It deserves to be unviolated, right? I have bodily integrity. Um, and they particularly talked about that from the perspective of hospitality. And there's some really interesting um, feminist ethicists who talk about pregnancy from the perspective of hospitality, that it's a moral act because you're creating a space, like a hospitable space for life to begin, and that hospitality is only ethical if it's not coerced, right? I mean, we have that from way back in the Revolutionary War, right? You can't like host soldiers in your home if you're being coerced into doing it, right? Same idea. Um, there's a lot that Judaism has to say about hospitality, right? And that's not always brought into the picture when we talk about um, abortion, right? So the, the hospitality of the body, the integrity of the body as a, as a home for the person and for the potential person. The third thing that a lot of people talked about, and I imagine there might be stories in this room as well, is talking with their uh, children daughters or mothers, aunts, grandmothers, about their reproductive lives and experiences. So people who talk to me about, my grandmother grew up in Iraq, she had seven children, and she talked to me about her abortion after she had seven kids. Or I talked to my daughter about my abortion. Or I talked to my daughter about my choice not to have an abortion. Or all, you know, women talk to each other through the generations about this, these experiences. And um, that that process of transmission of reproductive lineage or lack of reproductive lineage is a sacred process. Um, if we think about you know, Abraham and his seed always being in covenant with God and the, pro the promise always been, you know, your seed will be as numerous as the stars, this, I was finding, is this parallel lineage of all the times that that seed doesn't come to fruition, and that that we might see as equally as sacred and equally as in covenant, right? That's language we don't get from these texts. The fourth thing people talked about was the sacredness of choice, of being able to choose as a religious value. And they meant that about their religious lives, but they also clearly meant it about their reproductive lives and their physical lives. Judaism has a lot to say about choice, choices, the choices we make, right? And finally, people talked about it as a justice issue. And that brings us back to um, this, this broader framework of reproductive justice. The restrictions that are being placed on abortion access disproportionately affect women in rural areas, women of low socioeconomic status, women of color which means that it's much broader than just a question of you know, personhood in the womb. It's also a question of you know, justice and how it's enacted and how certain groups of people in this country have access to choices and possibilities that other groups don't, right? If you have the money, you can fly from Alabama to another state that will allow you. If you have the money, you can get childcare for your other children so that you can travel and wait the 48-hour waiting period that you need to wait, right? If you, if you have access, if you don't live three and a half hours drive away from the nearest clinic, then you can go in on a you know, lunch hour off when you need to, right? So disproportionately affects you know, huge chunks of people in our society, and it's a justice issue. So um, I sort of provide some language for all five of those ideas um, in my thesis. So again, if you want to read it, let me know. It's 170 pages long. Have fun. Um, but I want to read to you to close um, one of the ways that I use this and in, in, um, in sort of offering us new images for how we might use these ideas and how we might choose um, new language around these ideas that come out of the lived experiences of people who go through these issues. Um, and that is a midrash that I wrote 
um, based on the idea, and David's heard this already, <laughs> um, based on this idea of the sacredness of transmission of these experiences through generations. So I'm going to offer that to you um, to close and um, encourage us all to sort of see the possibility. We saw the interpretive possibilities of the texts that exist. My question is, what are the interpretive possibilities of the texts of our lives and the texts that we haven't yet written? Because I think those are so valuable, especially in times like these, where we lose the, the stories and the truth of what people are going through for um, you know, political gain and political speak, speech. So um, here is my midrash. After she came home from Shechem, Dina found a midwife. Her brothers, obsessed with her purity and their own good name, had slaughtered the whole city. What was Dina to do with the sign of her ordeal, with the result of what Shechem had done to her? Dina had an abortion. She refused to carry a pregnancy she did not ask for. She wanted to resume her outdoor walks to visit her neighbors. She wanted to find some peace. Dina knew, too, that the god of her mothers was with her. Leah, her mother, fertile and unloved wife, had been to the midwife, too. Seven times for seven children, and once more after. Despite the joy her sons and daughter brought her, despite the prestige, her body was tired. She was done carrying babies. When Dina, her youngest, was old enough, she told her the story of her abortion. And with it, an even older story, that of Sarah, the family's great matriarch through both birth and marriage, she of the miraculous pregnancy late in life. Leah's father-in-law, Isaac, was the son born to Abraham and Sarah's old age. He and her husband, Jacob, after him, they were the promised seed, the fulfillment of God's covenant. Sarah's pregnancy with Isaac was part of family legend. The fathers told it with pride to their sons. Everyone knew the darker family story, too, though they spoke of it in hushed tones. The day that Abraham had brought Isaac to the mountain to make a sacrifice to the eternal. The God of seed and male flesh had demanded Isaac as an offering. And only at the last minute did an angel come to stay Abraham's hand. Father Abraham, rewarded for his faith, bound Isaac, silenced by fear. But a few of the women knew the third story, the deepest one. Leah and Rachel heard it as girls. Dina learned it too. And it came to pass after these things. Sarah woke one morning to a strange feeling. She was pregnant again. No angels this time, no grand pronouncements, but inside the same laughter. She rolled over to reach for Abraham only to find that despite the early hour, he had already left the tent. At the tent flap, she washed her husband as he rushed by, saddling his donkey, chopping fresh wood, rushing Isaac along, though he would barely touch him. Where are you going so early? Sarah called to him, and in such a rush. Abraham came near his wife, his face pale, but his jaw set firm. She lifted up her eyes to meet his, and in one terrible instant she saw everything. Isaac climbing the mountain with wood on his back, Abraham binding her son, his hand raised, trembling and terrible, the glint of the knife against a darkened sky. She saw the angel intercede at the last moment, the ram in the thicket, the silent walk back down the mountain the trauma which would scar her beloved, precious son for the rest of his life. When her vision cleared, the two had already gone. Sarah turned inward. She wept, enraged. She sat in tortured silence. She clutched at her stomach, her breast. There was no midwife to go to so far from her homeland, but she remembered whispers, old stories about which herbs to take. Not this child, too, she promised herself. The God she knew would understand. Her husband must be speaking with something else. By the third day, she had decided. Sarah walked out to the fields in Kiryat Arba. Far off on Mount Moriah, Abraham raised the knife. Sarah took a deep breath and brought the herbs to her lips. 
and the life of Sarah was 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died in Kiryat Arba. So um, there is a space in the story of the Akedah that is filled by Midrash in our tradition, which is that Sarah dies immediately after. And the rabbis of the Midrash write about the idea that she is sort of Satan, the, the Satan figure, shows up and shows her what's going to happen with her son. And that it, that is so emotional that it kills her, right? Um, which means there is precedent in the tradition for the idea that something about the Akedah and about a, her child um, leads to her death. And... Um, I wanted with this story to fill that in a different way, in a way that I have seen people tell me about, right? Those stories about the idea of Leah having seven children and not wanting an eighth, someone told me a story just like that of a grandmother who had that experience. The idea of having nowhere to go and that leading you to make a choice that eventually will kill you, we are not so far away from that possibility, frighteningly enough, right? And um, I think it is so valuable and important to be able to speak to this from uh, our religious values and our religious stances and not just the values that have already been defined for us and the questions that have already been defined for us, but the ones that we're continuing to define and understand um, based on our own lived experiences and our own ability to ask questions of the tradition and the, our own ability to ask questions of ourselves. Um, so I hope that this gives you the space to think about this issue far more broadly than perhaps it's been presented before um, and also gives you the courage to use your voice as a person of faith to talk about um, issues like abortion and reproductive justice and other issues that people often assume faith has only one voice on. And I thank you for being a part of this discussion and for being present um, in such a beautiful way. And uh, I thank the Valley Bait Midrash for creating the possibility of this learning session. So uh, thank you for giving me a few extra minutes there at the end um, and have a great afternoon. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybatemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.